Hey everybody, welcome to Lab Chat. Um, now I don't know if you've heard of this, but uh, there's a new virus going around uh, called COVID-19. I'm sure you're not sick of hearing about it. Um, so I've decided just to make a little episode here um, because I think we're getting a lot of information from a lot of people. Um, and there's not that many lab scientists or um, people from behind the scenes giving us that information. And I think at this time, our voices are some of the most important um, to kind of get the facts out there. So I've uh, put together a little kind of list of some myth busting and kind of what labs are doing to prepare for coronavirus. And um, so hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. All right, so you might have heard a million different things at this point, so let's just get started with the basics. Today is March 19th, 2020. Um, we now have 244,000 worldwide cases, uh, 10,000 deaths. Here in the U.S., we have uh, 13,780 cases, 207 of those resulting in deaths. Um, the virus itself, there's been some estimates about the r naught value. Uh, what this value is, is the number of people that will become infected if they encounter someone who is already infected. That number right now is estimated to be somewhere from 1.5 to 3.5. As you can imagine, if the person is passing uh, the illness to 1.5 people, and that's not an adult or and a kid that's actually you know an average of course <laughs> um, we will see the number of cases rise so really what we're trying to do is minimize that r not value as much as possible and once we get below one we will see a decrease uh, in the number of cases over time eventually uh, seeing zero so that's what that value means Fatality, you might have heard uh, quite a few estimates going around. Early on, there was some doubt about the Chinese numbers. Um, what they ended up seeing was around a 3% uh, mortality rate. Uh, it's recently been revised by the WHO. They think somewhere around 2% is more uh, realistic. If you look at the number of U.S. cases right now, we're actually at a 1.5% mortality rate. Um, and just to put this in perspective, the SARS virus, which was also a coronavirus, um, had a 10 around a 10% death rate. Um, MERS, the Middle Eastern virus, had a 34% uh, death rate, and Ebola, somewhere around 50%, and that's even with the industrialized cases, which are much lower. So some things for Ebola, um, we've seen even up to like 60, 70% mortality, depending. Um, so the incubation, uh, this one has also been tossed around. We think that uh, as few as two days um, is the incubation phase, but this can also last up to 14 days. Um, the virus can be contagious during these asymptomatic uh, incubation phases, um, but really depends on the viral uh, particles getting in respiratory droplets to spread. Um, there's also been other things, you know, mentioned about kids 
uh, getting the disease. Now, while there's been no deaths in kids, they also seem to either have less or no symptoms um, comparatively. And this is really interesting because uh, they can kind of be little reservoirs for those um, older citizens. So what we do know about the cases in China um, is that 80% of the deaths occurred in um, people that were 60 and older. 75% of those uh, were people with pre-existing conditions. And what we mean by that is uh, some kind of underlying cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, something that compromises respiratory function like asthma. And the mean age of those uh, cases were 45. 71% of uh, those cases were male. Um, and if you look at some statistics out of China, 52 to 68% of males smoke, uh, which may increase their risk. There was also a lot of speculation around the survival time of the um, virus. And some recent studies have come out uh, that have shown differing things. Um, one recent study suggests that the virus can actually survive in the air in um, droplets that are smaller than five uh, micrometers uh, for up to three hours. On other surfaces, you know, after four to eight hours, the amount of viable virus decreased significantly, but it can still be detected on copper surfaces um, anywhere from four to eight hours, on uh, steel surfaces up to 72 hours, and on cardboard, uh, 24 hours. Some estimates put all these around 48 hours. I've also seen that uh, it can survive on plastic surfaces likely because they're more porous in nature up to 72 hours. All right, so let's get into some fun stuff with the myth busting. I don't know about you guys, but um, since day one of this uh, virus, I've seen some really uh, interesting things going around the internet on our cable news networks um, being spread, a lot of which turns out not to be true. I mean, I remember in the beginning, um, there was a lot of talk about this virus coming from a snake uh, in the market. And I just remember thinking, you know, everything about my studies in virology tells me that that's really unlikely. Uh, we often don't see spread of viruses from reptiles to humans. Not to say it can't happen, but there were probably a lot more likely uh, culprits at play. Turns out, you know, three days later when we sequenced the genome of the virus that 95% of the sequence similarity uh, was shared with coronaviruses that are found in bats. So we likely think that the virus made a jump from bat to human. That's hard to prove, but that's the theory as of now. Um, you know, there's also been a lot of talk about this escaping from a lab at some point. I can't sit here and tell you that that didn't happen, um, but we would suspect that someone with uh, intentions to do major harm um, would make a virus that's much more deadly than the coronavirus has proven to be. Um, so that's one line of evidence that people may use. There's no doubt that this virus has caused uh, widespread panic and um, quite a bit of economic destability. But from all we can tell, this is likely not a lab-developed virus and did make that jump from a bat. 
Okay, so um, some other fun ones. I saw uh, Gerardo Rivera on uh, News Network telling people that if you can hold your breath for 10 seconds, it means that you do not have the coronavirus. That is definitely not true. Um, I can see where that might have came from as far as compromised respiratory function, but like we just talked about, you know, people can be asymptomatic. 80% of cases are very mild in nature um, and have very little respiratory involvement. So this one's definitely not true. Um, it, there was a lot of talk about um, it not being able to be transmitted in heat, humid weather, things like that. And uh, that is also definitely not true. The virus, of course, lives in the human body. Uh, the temperature in the human body is 98.6, 37 Celsius. Um, so it can definitely withstand warmer temperatures. Um, and same goes for cold weather. It doesn't kill the virus, so don't depend on those things to kill the virus. And most of these things I'm discussing are coming from the uh, WHO's uh, myth-busting section, if you want to look into them. Um, so I'm just going to read off some. It cannot be transmitted through mosquitoes. Um, hand dryers do not kill the virus, um, although they might help the spread of respiratory uh, particles. Um, thermal scanners, uh, all those are doing are detecting if someone has a fever or not. So these are not detecting the virus, and I know that was being spread around um, on some news networks. Uh, and they can't even catch people who are asymptomatic, right, because they don't have fevers actively going. So it's not a great screening tool, but it, it can be useful. And if you look at what's happening in these more severe cases, the virus sets up its stronghold in your respiratory epithelial cells, it binds the uh, ACE2 surface receptor um, and enters the cell where it will uh, come out of its capsid, put its RNA in the cell and use the host machinery to start replicating uh, viral RNA and uh, its capsid and spike proteins. While this is happening, the cell uh, is under extreme stress and ends up dying, uh, the immune system is trying to fight off the virus simultaneously and clear the damage. In that time is a perfect time for a bacteria to come set up shop and cause a secondary pneumonia. So often these cases progress into severe pneumonia and then sepsis. Um, so practicing good hygiene and um, keeping those respiratory infections at bay may be quite helpful. That being said, of course, antibiotics do not work for coronavirus since it is a virus and not a bacteria. Antibiotics do work uh, if you have a bacterial infection. One final thing, um, we know that respiratory droplets are the main mode of transmission for this virus. You know, there's talk about other surfaces having viral particles, but it's not likely that those are the main uh, mechanisms in which an infection is caused. It's most likely your proximity to individuals that are actively spreading respiratory droplets. All right, so we got all the myths under control. Now we can move on to what do we actually do about this virus. And I'm going to be talking about um, the things we can do at home, but also the testing uh, that labs are doing now um, and your lab might be doing and also vaccines that are are showing potential so we all know the basics here like wash your hands don't touch your face 
stay six feet away from people, don't have fun, those kind of things. As far as cleaning goes, 62% to 71% ethanol is pretty effective against the virus. Uh, using percentages that are lower than that may not work. And using percentages higher than that may not work, which is really interesting. And that's a poorly understood phenomenon. But um, make sure you do get that 62 to 71%. 0.5% um, uh, peroxide also works. And 0.1% bleach that can just be made by diluting down your household bleach. Of course, um, you know, staying home is really important here. Uh, and they talk about flattening the curve. And this is the idea that instead of um, creating a situation where the number of infections go up rapidly and we overwhelm our healthcare systems, we can prevent the spread by uh, this social distancing and keeping our space and hopefully uh, thin it out so it isn't a huge bird burden on society. Um, this is really effective and I recommend it. But one thing that we're not uh, telling people around us enough is that it really isn't the best thing to go straight to the hospital if you think you are having symptoms. What you're doing um, when you're going to the hospital is you're putting healthcare workers and high-risk people uh, in danger. People don't stop getting sick from other things during a pandemic. Um, so we need our healthcare professionals to remain healthy and um, part of your role is staying home when you're sick. If things do progress, of course, reach out and uh, follow whatever your local municipality has set up. A lot of places are setting up drive-through testing centers where a person wouldn't have to enter the healthcare institution. Um, there's also at-home testing that I've seen uh, being talked about, so more to come on that. Okay. Let's get into the testing, which is our bread and butter and kind of what I'm excited to talk about. Um, so if we just backtrack here, uh, at the, in the days after the Wuhan virus emerged, um, there was a sequencing of the genome that happened and then a development of a testing kit that was used uh, and rolled out rapidly. The WHO um, used that kit in quite a few different places. The US decided not to use that kit and instead develop our own. Um, so that is currently where we are. The first kit to come out was from the CDC and that employed the uh, ABI 7550. Um, the problem with this rollout was there were manufacturing uh, defects in the kits that they provided with one of the reagents. And so we had trouble, they had to be recalled and then rolled out once again. Most of the testing that is currently done is what's called real-time reverse transcriptase PCR. It's reverse transcriptase because if we remember the viral genome is RNA, and so it is converted into DNA and then amplified in cycles of a polymerase chain reaction um, event, which amplifies the number of copies. And in these assays, there's uh, a detection, usually a fluorophore or some kind of probe, um, that's measured at each cycle by a spectrophotometer of some sort. 
And they talk about this uh, cycle threshold value, and that's the value in which there are enough copies in order for us to call a sample positive. Um, these are being done in a variety of formats, and it's an awesome technology because once we know uh, specific sites that we want to go after, it's as simple as um, you know sequencing the genome and then selecting those sites, putting the primers in the master mix and um, testing it out. So that's where we're currently at. The FDA has issued emergency use authorization on these assays, which means that the typical validation process is drastically shortened. Um, I've heard of some labs getting through these validations in a matter of days, even in some extreme circumstances, even a day. Something I've heard that's been a problem is locating positive samples in order to perform your validation on site. Um, but a lot of these companies are now providing those along with the instrument and the reagents uh, to do it all in one. So this is making things a lot simpler. And keep in mind, of course, whenever something like this happens, the number of disclaimers on documents uh, is pretty astonishing. So as time goes on, we'll have more, more um, data points to kind of reassess these assays, but for now they're a good first line. Um, it is recommended that their upper respiratory uh, collections, usually nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal, as that's where the virus is primarily located. You can also do serum uh, and lower respiratory specimens just for secondary um, confirmation. The other thing to mention is that since we are working with RNA, um, the extraction of RNA is a little bit harder because it's so unstable. RNA is uh, one of the factors that we secrete, and so it's all over our skin. Um, so it's really important to use the correct reagents here to extract the RNA so that it isn't degraded before you even do your testing. Um, storing in viral transport media is a really good idea here. And there's some good guidelines found on the CDC website. All right, so who is actually uh, working on these assays? Roche was the first company to get approval uh, on their 6600 and 8800 platform. Uh, the 8800 has the capability to do 960 tests uh, in an eight-hour shift, which is incredible. Um, they've said that they have 400,000 test kits available and an, an additional 1.5 million to come. Um, there's also the BioFire Torch that you might be familiar with. Uh, this is actually not a real-time PCR. This is a microarray um, technology that employs uh, probes uh, that would be hybridized to on a chip. This guy, they say probably in Q2 or Q3 of 2020, they will submit it for approval. And um, both of those assays that I just mentioned have about a four to five hour runtime. The Cepheid is also promising that they will have uh, COVID included on their flu AB and RSV. Um, and that's expected to be available in a couple of weeks. And my hospital hopes to go live with it. And that actually is a really um, simple kit to use if you've ever used it. Of course, you're not going to have the same throughput as the Roche system. Um, so it is better for those low volume laboratories out there for COVID testing. The last thing to mention here is, 
You might be familiar just from your chemistry analyzers with immunological testing that might be done. Um, this is generally less sensitive and specific than real-time PCR, um, and it can be used to detect viral antigen, but there's not really any interest in doing this with the molecular tools that are available, but it is being used as far as um, detecting the COVID antibody to prove that a person has already had um, the coronavirus. So the CDC is doing immunological ELISA assays where they detect the viral nucleocapsid protein and the spike protein, and then they're also um, measuring the, the corresponding antibodies that a person might produce. So that kind of summarizes it all as far as what's going on in lab testing land, and I know there's a lot more, but that's just kind of an overview. The last thing I wanted to finish up with is kind of some of the vaccines um, that have been talked about in treatments and therapies that are coming down the line. Um, so one of the really exciting things that you may have seen in the news in the last couple of days um, was a company that was called Moderna, and they're developing a mRNA-based vaccine. And this kind of goes against the traditional principles of what a vaccine is. Traditionally, a vaccine has been introducing the viral antigen or the antigen that you want the body to create an immune response to, um, to elicit the response. This is actually the idea that we take the actual viral uh, mRNA, which codes for viral protein, and then that viral protein is manufactured within our own cells. Um, it manufactures this protein and then it's presented to the immune system and a immune response is elicited that way. Given that it's so much different than the typical vaccines we use, um, there's some pros and cons, definitely. As far as safety, you know, there's no risk that we will actually uh, cause an infection with this since we're only introducing the mRNA to one viral protein, right? Um, early trials show that this can be a definitely valid way to elicit an immune response. And actually, we can get these uh, vaccines to market much more quickly than probably a typical vaccine. So those are the pros. But kind of some of the downsides are that we don't really know what immune response is going to be generated, at least in the uh, infancy of this new vaccine. So to give it straight to humans is definitely a risk. Um, but if it works out, it could be really great. The other thing is, uh, as mentioned before, RNA and the body just don't really go together. So RNA is broken down very quickly when it's freely in circulation. And we have to figure out how are we going to get this RNA into a cell so that the cell can then manufacture these viral proteins. Um, I don't know specifically what technology Moderna is using to help facilitate this process, but I would assume they might have found some workarounds here. And same with the storage of these vaccines, since they actually contain mRNA, they need to be stored under certain conditions, and of course they can't be um, contaminated with active RNases. So all those things need to be considered, but really exciting stuff, and I hope to see um, what kind of results come out of this. Um, the other possible treatments could be a something that's called a plasma therapeutic. 
Um, this is where we actually harvest antibody from people who have recovered from corona and then reintroduce it to sick patients. This is something that was kind of used for the Ebola epidemic, if you remember. Um, and there's no reason it couldn't work for coronavirus. The downfall is that um, it's a much longer regulatory process to get something like that approved. Um, but once approved, it could be fairly successful. And I know that one company working on this is Takata Pharmaceuticals, and they've estimated that it would be ready for approval anywhere from six to 18 months from now. There's another antiviral on the market right now called, I think, Rimidazovir, Rimzovir, something like that. And it's from uh, Gilead Pharmaceuticals. And this was a antiviral that was used in the Ebola epidemic. Um, and it is specifically used for RNA viruses. Basically what it does is it increases intracellular concentrations of an analog of adenosine, which is a nucleotide. So when the virus tries to assemble its RNA, it uses this adenosine, um, and basically that terminates the synthesis of the RNA, and then the virus cannot reproduce. So this one holds promise. It's being uh, fast-tracked right now. It's in five clinical trials that are expedited. Um, so hopefully this one holds promise. Now there's no saying what, you know, providing your body with an analog of adenosine would do long term, but you would assume that there would be some definite side effects there. But short term, curing yourself with a virus might work really well. So anyways, that's all I have for today. Um, thank you for tuning in and listening. And I hope uh, maybe I added some clarity. Maybe I made things more confusing. but. Hopefully, all this can be a reference to um, your friends and your family if they ask kind of what's going on. And I just wanted to thank all of the lab scientists out there who are working so hard on all this. And um, we really are a key part, and I know that we aren't thanked every day. Um, but everyone out there, stay safe, stay healthy, and um, keep on fighting the good fight. You can visit the California Association for Medical Technology at camlt.org. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we need your membership to keep going and to keep putting this podcast on. So thanks so much for everything and have a good week, everybody. Bye-bye.